Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I have an anthology coming out called Moms Don't Have Time 2, a quarantine anthology. And it comes out on February 16th and has essays by 60 plus of the authors who have been on this podcast. So first of all, please pre-order this book. I think you will love it. I'm so excited about all the authors who are represented. Um, just to give you a few, um, Chris Bajalian, uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes, Ashley Prentice Norton, Gretchen Rubin, Rima Zaman, Eileen Zimmerman. And that is just from the first page of the multi-page table of contents. So please pick up this book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. It's available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, bookshop.org, and your local independent bookstore. So please pick up a copy. And also, I want to invite you listeners to my um, fundraiser slash launch party the night it comes out on February 16th, a Tuesday at 7 p.m., Bookhampton and the Children's Museum of the East End are co-hosting it for me. And 50 of the authors who wrote essays in this book, as well as many of the amazing authors who blurbed this book, um, who wrote little praiseworthy quotes at at the front, will be there. And you can be there too. So if you go to my website, zibbyowens.com, and just click on Anthology and go to Book Tour, you will see um, a whole fundraiser section. And for $50, um, you can attend. You'll get a copy of the book, and you'll get to schmooze on Zoom with all of these amazing authors. This is like going to be the literary happening of February. So please come. I would love to see you all in person on Zoom, I guess, but even see some of your faces. I know so many of you are really loyal listeners, and that makes me really happy. All proceeds of the book and the fundraiser are going to the Susan Felice Owens Program for COVID-19 Vaccine Research at Mount Sinai Health System. And it is named after my husband's mother, who passed away from COVID over the summer, which many of you followed along on Instagram as I uh, recounted that horrific experience. So all the proceeds are going there. The cost includes the price of a book. So thank you for supporting this effort and for supporting my book. I can't wait to see you there. Today's episode has been sponsored by Chicken Soup for the Soul, Making Me Time, 101 Stories About Self-Care and Balance, edited by Amy Newmark. This is a fantastic collection of essays, and everyone will find something relatable and that they can use to make their lives better within these essays. Abigail Dean is the debut author of Girl A, her first novel, which is publishing in spring 2021. She's a lawyer, and before that, she was a bookseller. She currently lives in London and is working on her second novel. Welcome, Abigail. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Girl A. Thank you so much for having me, Zibby. It's really awesome to be here. 
Oh, well, this book, oh my gosh, intense. Can you tell listeners what it's about and how did you come up with the idea for this book? Sure, I can. So girl A is Lex Gracie. And as a child, Lex manages to escape from her family home, which becomes known as the House of Horrors in the press. And when she does, she frees her six brothers and sisters and exposes her parents' crimes. And Girl A opens 15 years after that escape. And Lex, by then, is a successful attorney. She's living in New York. She just does not want to think about her childhood in any way. That is until her mother dies in prison. And when she does, she leaves Lex and her siblings, the family home and the House of Horrors, where they grew up. So Lex has to return to the UK, reconnect with her brothers and sisters and kind of, you know, revisit those old battles and the old alliances of their childhood to decide the fate of the house. So it was... (laughs) (laughs) Your imagination, by the way, I mean... You were not in a house like this, correct? I'm assuming, or were you? No, I was not. Okay. Yeah, the, the Gracie family and Lex. I, yeah, I am a lawyer, but I'm nowhere near as good a lawyer as Lex is. And <laughs> I, yeah, this was very much not my childhood. Yes. Good. I didn't think so. Okay. So how did you, well, first of all, how did you come up with this whole idea for this book? And I know it's your first like foray into this whole thing. Why this topic and how did you make it so real? I mean, it literally feels like you were in that room with the window and the shackles and the piles of garbage and like the the way you had it with, like, it's just so real. So tell me just how did that, how did you do that? It's, it's a weird thing where, you know, you, you kind of look back at the writing and you're like, I don't know, but thinking about it, I actually, I, I think there are things that sort of I did do and that, that I can think back to. So I think one of the things that I'd often, you know, been really interested in and, and being kind of conflicted about in another way was I'm a big kind of consumer of true crime. You know, I've watched like the documentaries on Netflix, like, you know, I've listen to the podcasts. And I always wondered, you know, often that those those materials focus on the particular action or, you know, the event. But there's like, there's so much time after that. You, you know, you have like the, the people who were affected by those crimes, you know, there are so many months and years and like decades that follow them. And I think that was one of the ideas that I was really thinking about with Girl A, you know, in these cases that often you know, often do affect children how do they live the rest of their lives and what kind of like resilience and strength those human beings have and that was something I wanted to be like a real focus of the novel you know just looking at these characters in turn who've all reacted really differently to what happened to them and in the house of horrors you know how do they live now that was a sort of real, real kind of question that I wanted to to look at. And I think in creating the house, like, you know, I actually really often think about houses in literature, you know, you know, like the house of Usher in Poe or, or like in a way like Hogwarts in the Harry Potter books, they are almost a character in their own right, I think. I mean, they almost, they shape the book as much as any of the, any of the sort of 
actual other characters do. And I think that's how I wanted the house on Moorwoods Road to be in Girl A, you know, where the children grow up. I had sort of small sketches of where the different rooms were and you know where the different children are at different times. And yeah, I think it was just a case of sort of almost thinking about the house as I would, as with the same importance as, as the people who occupy it, if that makes sense. I feel like if I were writing this, I would have to just like take my own house or something and make it like to recreate a total, like, I don't think visually like that, like in terms of like being able to just like manufacture another completely new house that then devolves into this crazy, you know, stuff that happens. I don't know. I'm very impressed. In other words, it's, it's impressive. <laughs> I think that like the, the landscape definitely is, um, you, cause it, it, the house is also set on this like moorland. I mean, it's quite isolated. Yep. It's sort of out of town up this, you know, road where the houses get further and further apart. I think that that road is definitely based on a road that is very near to my parents' house and and where I grew up. It's a road that always kind of made me a bit on edge. It kind of goes up into the moorland just outside of Manchester. And it's one of those roads as well where the street lamps like just kind of stop halfway up. So I think that that was a real influence. Like it was just one of those roads that, you know, you kind of take a different route to avoid it one of those. So it's not at all entirely fictional, I think, in terms of the setting. The house, maybe, but not the road. Okay. So you could actually imagine when Lexi escapes and is like standing in the road half naked and, you know, has to stop a car and go to the hospital and that look of horror on the driver's face, like, oh my gosh. So you have like the actual backdrop for the whole thing, which is very cool. Yeah, exactly. I think the road just got more scary for me. I don't think I'm going to be able to go like a long get ever again. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to be continually taking alternate routes here. <laughs> or you have to get some sort of a new lamp or something and say like, this is where this book was based, you know, like, put like a post change the whole look. I'll give that a go. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So when you set out to write this book, how did you integrate it with your career as an attorney and everything? When did you write it? How did you decide like, okay, I'm also going to write this book and I'm going to take the time for it. And how did that all happen? Or was it just more organic? It was, in a way, it wasn't very organic, I guess. I'd been working as an attorney in law firms for six years or so. And I had just come to the end of like a really tough, a really tough time at work, just with really grueling hours, you know, sort of, I remember very vividly missing my husband's birthday on a Saturday night that that I had like planned and just kind of, I think it was one of those moments where you sort of step back a bit and you look at your life and you're like, oh, was this actually, you know, is this actually what I wanted? Like, was this the plan? And if this was the plan, like, should it still be the plan? Because you're obviously not particularly happy (laughs) right now and one of the kind of elements you know of that was the fact that I hadn't written in those six year in that six year period it was something that as a kid I was always doing as a teenager you know I was writing fan fiction and I was like filling notebooks and it had completely slipped away from me so I think in terms of trying to address the, the sort of work 
issues. You know, I was like, I'm going to leave my job. But as part of that, I want to take some time to give writing a go and, you know, to just, just see if I can get something down and, you know, if it's something that my family and friends might, you know, want to read and we can go from there. So I took three months off between jobs. I had an, another legal job lined up that, you know, I knew would have better hours and, and a kind of more realistic, balanced approach to, to, to things. So yeah, in that three month period, so to be honest, Sibby, I thought, you know, I'm going to finish my novel. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to finish it. I mean, how ridiculous. <laughs> I got about halfway, maybe about a third of the way through. Um, and then it was another nine months of working away, you know, in the evenings and at weekends. But, you know, that was also while working in a job that was much more manageable and gave me the sort of energy to be able to to write Girl A and, and to finish it. So you might not have finished it in the three months, but I bet you did enough in the three months to that it got propelled and... I mean, sometimes you need that headspace just to like completely delve in. So I would not beat yourself up about it. I think three months is definitely aggressive, but you know, I love that you tried it because like, look what happened. It's true. And I think that you're exactly right in terms of you almost make such an investment in that three month period. You know, it's like, you could have, I could have gone traveling and instead I was sitting in a library, like, you know, working on, on girl A. And I think that that, you put in so much that in a way that that in itself is a big driver to just kind of keep going and in the more tiring evenings and you know when you're like I'd really rather be watching like Selling Sunset right now (laughs) you know okay like actually no I'm gonna I'm gonna write Girl A and I'm going to try to see it try to see it through. And so what happened then when you finished it? I finished it around sort of springtime of 2019, I think. And I actually had shown it by then to my family. I'd shown it to my husband and yeah, I'd shown it to my parents who are retired English teachers as well. And they were all like, you know, my, my husband said very memorably, and I kind of laugh at him for this, but it was actually one of the nicest things that anybody has said, said to me. You know, he said, it's like a book that you would buy in a shop. <laughs> and, you know, I, I thought, okay, well, in that case, I will, I'll, I'll try to send it to agents and I will just see if they're interested. So I kind of put together the sort of pack that, you know, as, as a writer, you put together the covering letter and the summary and your first three chapters and send it out to some agents who I, who I knew had had represented or loved books that were similar to Girl A. That's what I looked for. You know, I think often agents list their favorite books on their websites, or they you know you can read about recent deals in the press, and that's kind of how I targeted the submissions. And quite a few agents were interested. I think three of the five that I sent it to, and I think that was the first moment when you think like, oh. Like this could actually happen, maybe. You know, I, obviously there's still a lot of stages to go, but it it felt really hopeful um, that for the first time. That's amazing. And then your agent took it out and sold it right away. Is that what happened? I don't know the publication story. No, not at all. So we we actually one of the reasons that I ended up going with my agent was that she felt that it needed quite a lot of work before we sent it to publishers. So she wanted to spend a bit of time editing it with me. And I really liked that idea. I think, you know, I definitely 
had didn't really have loads of confidence in my writing never really have and I think I liked the idea that she wanted to make it as good as it possibly could be before we sent it to publishers so we did three months of editing like two full rounds of editing before it was sent out and then what happened (laughs) (laughs) so then it was sent to publishing houses in the U.S. and in the U.K. and I very vividly remember my agent saying to me I was going on a business trip for work and I was going to India and she said like you know what just go and have a you know think don't think about this and just think about work and you know we'll we probably won't hear anything in the next week so I remember being in a taxi in rural India and I had no phone signal oh I actually had the word something worse than no phone signal I had just enough phone signal to see that my agent was calling me when I was in this taxi but without any ability to answer the phone or to hear what she was saying So uh, there was a kind of agonizing three-hour car journey when I knew that she was trying to get through to me, but I I just could not hear a, a, you know, a word. And that was her ringing with the news that in the UK and in the US, it looked like there would be auctions for Galay, which was just way beyond anything that I'd ever expected or hoped for. Yeah, but it, it was a very stressful, tense three hours. <laughs> Wow. That is so exciting. That's like the total dream, having a novel go to auction. That's like, you know, it doesn't get much better than that, right? In terms of trying to sell a book. Yeah. It was just kind of as surreal as you would expect. Like, and I'm still not entirely sure it sunk in either. I think I still got a bit of doubt as to whether any of this actually happened. So, (laughs) And yet now it's come out. I wonder, I mean, it's not that the life has somewhat returned a little bit versus where it was a year ago, but we are still in the pandemic as this book is coming out. Did you see when you were selling it and planning for the release, like, what did you think? Did you think it would be over by now? Like, what were you anticipating the world to look like? Because I remember last March and I would talk to authors and they were even like, oh, well, I'm publishing in January, in July, so I'll be fine. You know, and now of course it's like the following February. So tell me about that. I definitely had that sense, I think, you know, of, oh, it's kind of, we're talking about nearly a year away, like, you know, things will probably be um, be back to normal by then. It's, it's really strange because, you know, I think ultimately in publishing and writing, it, it hasn't, you know, it's not had a massive effect. I think, you know, Books are still selling. People are reading kind of more than ever. The only thing I think that is a real dampener is not getting to meet booksellers and readers. I think that that is kind of like, it would have just been lovely to do that. At the same time, I hope that that, those moments will come. Uh, And I feel like I have this like massive list of people who I want to like say thank you to in person. And I hope that, yeah, like soon enough, it will be possible to do that. But, but in the meantime, I think, yeah, like I I just feel very, very grateful to be published and it happened in a pandemic, but yeah, I think the book's still getting out there and people are still meeting the Gracie family and, and it's still gripping readers. And that's kind of what matters to me. No, it's great. People are longing for stories that completely suck them in right now. I think more than ever, right? They just, I feel like even my mother the other day was like, you know, I just can't get through a book. You know, I don't know why. Usually I get through everything and 
I just keep putting them down. And I was, so of course I was like, well, let me recommend a few that I haven't been able to put down, you know? And she's like, okay, I'll try. (laughs) But I just feel like there's this collective, like, I don't know. At first there was so much anxiety that people weren't reading. And then I think people got back into reading and I don't know. I think there's this fatigue at this point, right? Like, especially as older people get the vaccine and they know that maybe they will have this protective shield of sorts coming that they're, you know, so excited almost they can't sit down and read. (laughs) Yes. I know. I think you're exactly right. Like I, I feel like at present there is actually some hope that came with the start of a new year and with the vaccine. And yeah, I, I'm kind of hoping that slowly that low level kind of horrible worry and stress that has been there is kind of converting to hope. And like, you know, the balance is still potentially a bit shifted towards worry, but it feels like we're heading hopefully in the right direction. We should all have like one of those old-fashioned scales on our desks with hope and worry, you know, or maybe it's more of a sliding, a sliding thing, like a, a different type of scale where every day you can sort of nudge it to the right or the left. And then you could let people know, like my husband could come in and he could see like, oh, you're all the way on the worry side. Okay. And he could just turn around and walk out. <laughs> yeah, but there's certain things today you should not say to me because you can see what exactly. the worry is. Save it more on the hope side, you know, come back to me then. That's not a bad idea. Now he has to rely on just a quick glance, but he can pretty much figure it out. (laughs) You know, back in the day before the pandemic, I used to do all these events and I would pair authors for various reasons, usually two authors, sometimes three for topics that I found had some interest and maybe not in a predictable way. And I feel like if this were regular time, I would want to pair you with Stephanie Thornton Plymel. And I don't know if you're familiar with her book. It's called American Daughter. And obviously I know you're not American, but her story is a memoir about having basically grown up in in a situation like this. She was one of five or six because she had half siblings, but six siblings essentially who part of her growing up, she was a prisoner in a house and how it affected all of those siblings years later. So it's almost like the real life, not exactly, it wasn't per se, this house of horrors, like the way your book is with everybody and one escapee at the beginning, you know, all of that, but is what happens when you've gone through so much trauma in your early childhood in a completely, you know, out there way that so few people can even relate to what happens to you then and how do you repair your life and what happens to all the different siblings, right? It's like you have a control set, like it's a psychological experiment. So anyway, I feel like the two of you should like take this on the road or something. No, I've literally, I'm like writing this down because it sounds, yeah, like an amazing story. And yeah, I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that it sounds like um, American Daughter might have as well is that there is like hope to it. You know, I, I think sometimes you, know, you can hear the, the arc of a story and think, you know, this is going to be like a desperately difficult, sad read. And I think often in those kind of really dark places, there's there's also a lot of strength and resilience and, and hope as, as well. Yes, she could nudge her hope meter all the way over. I mean, people can get through basically everything. And I think your book speaks to this too, as you see like a fully functional woman, you know, marching into a prison, picking up her mother's things and, you know, going about her business and speaking intelligently and knowing that she went through that and seeing how she can function in everyday life. Like it's just empowering, right? Then you think, well, gosh, if people can get through this, you know, the fact that like, you know, 
my mom missed this concert of mine or something. It's like not even, I mean, she didn't, but you know, the little things that come in most people's lives suddenly feel just so insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. I wanted Lex to be this really kind of, in a way, quite reserved narrator. You know, I, I don't think she necessarily wears her heart or suffering on her sleeve in any way but I think that you know she just has this kind of real internal strength like this kind of quiet strength both in her escape um, but also in how she approaches life yeah in the present day you know as as she's kind of dealing with how the house of horrors can be turned into something in a force for good she 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 does have a kind of slightly wry humor about things and yeah I think that's what sort of for me that's where the 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 hope of the novel is found is it is in Lex's kind of narrative and in her as just this like fantastic woman I, I think yeah amazing well Abigail what advice do you have to aspiring authors aside from you can't necessarily finish a book in three months <laughs> That would definitely be number one. I mean, my. So I guess, and this is going to sound so unromantic, and uh, you know, in terms of advice, but I think it is just to 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 write and to get the words down for a huge amount of like, uh, yeah, my my twenties. You know, I would often say, well, my dream job would be to be a writer. You know, that's what I'd love. I'd love to be a writer, and another another kind of blunt piece of advice from my husband was. Well, you, know, you can't be a writer if you don't write anything, which is, you know, felt at the time a bit kind of close to the bone, I think. But it, it is very true. And I, I think that it, it that's kind of the, the biggest and you know, most important piece of advice in a way that I think I had is you know, there's no reason why it shouldn't be you. Who, who does get published and but you you will never ever have the shot unless you have got the words down on the page and yeah it's it doesn't matter if it's on notes on your phone which it sometimes is for me it's just getting the words down that's great well thank you I love hearing success stories like yours I love that it all paid off and that you took stock of your life and your job and rebalanced everything and like look what came of it like you gave yourself just the littlest window and it has exploded into a novel that is so brilliantly written and gripping and that all these other people now are going to take their time to enjoy it's really amazing so for I, I feel like you have this corollary piece of advice which is for people who are like in a job that they know is not right for them sometimes it's worth it because the benefits of taking stock and sort of doing what you feel deep down you're meant to do ends up helping way more people and ultimately making you far more successful than you could have been in a job that is sort of deadening your soul. Yeah, I'm very relieved that I took that took the chance. Yeah, um, and I very nearly didn't. <laughs> so thank you so much, Zibri. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you took the chance too, because otherwise I would, I would be holding nothing. I would just be going like this and <laughs> we would probably not be on the phone. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, congratulations. Enjoy all of the success. So well-deserved and bravo to you. Thank you so much. And thank you for reading Gilly. Of course. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks to today's sponsor, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Making Me Time, 101 Stories About Self-Care and Balance, edited by Amy Newmark. 
And just a reminder again, please pre-order a copy of my book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology, and go to my website under the anthology tab for the fundraiser, and I hope you'll buy a ticket and join me for, and I should have mentioned, um, all proceeds go to COVID-19 research. So please join me for the fundraiser. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time To Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music.